My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Scondalust, the podcast about the emotional side of money, why our actions aren't always as good as our intentions, and what we can do about it. I'm Martha Lawton. And I'm Alex Lemon. And we're your hosts. Today on Scondalust, we are talking to another fantastic special guest. Chris Fitch is a research fellow at the University of Bristol's Personal Finance Research Centre, where he runs a programme looking at vulnerability, financial difficulty, and financial services. He's also a vulnerability lead for the Money Advice Trust, providing consulting services for a range of creditors who want to improve their support for vulnerable customers. And he hosts the Vulnerability Matters podcast too. Uh, we're going to talk about what we mean by consumer vulnerability. And I would say what Martha and Chris mean, because I'm very much not the expert here in this topic, and they very much are, and what's being done to help vulnerable customers get a better deal. Also, uh, we're going to talk about what sort of things you can look for in providers if you or someone you know needs help. We are going to talk a bit about the reactions people have to the word vulnerable. Spoilers, it makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. And we'll discuss why we think they react that way and what that means when you're trying to influence a sector like financial services to do better by its customers. Chris, welcome. Hello. Hello. Nice to be here. Just, just firstly, no one knows what vulnerability means. It's an enigma wrapped in a puzzle, shrouded in a mystery. <laughs> Excellent. Looking good, forward good. to unwrapping that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've blown it. Is everyone turning off now? <laughs> <laughs> They're even more well, intrigued, I'm sure. <laughs> I think. I think, you know... Where the push and pull comes around that is is part of what's interesting about this topic. Chris, tell us a bit about your background. How did you get into researching something that seems quite um, specific, quite narrow? Yeah, it's, it's quite narrow. It's quite niche. It's, um, so I do listen to Squanderlust um, as a listener, as a regular Joe or Josephine. So it's, it's quite strange to actually be on it. So, um, so <laughs> I'm going to kind of um, frame my, my, my background in terms of emotion. So kind of uh, so three emotional acts of kindness got me into this. So the first one, as I'm sure everyone has had in their life, I got offered a job by a Marxist whilst hitchhiking down the A270. 
Um, I think he was uh, striking a blow <laughs> for the proletariat. Um, but kind of until then, kind of um, I had no interest whatsoever in uh, being involved in research. Uh, I had hankerings to be a, a bank manager when I was 14. I went for a week's work experience at my local high street bank in Walthamstow. And they sent me home on a Wednesday because I couldn't count or add up properly. Uh, so, yeah, I got £14 <laughs> in my pocket, went and bought a fine young cannibals CD at the time. It was a glory days. But kind of, I've been brought up in a working class family. Mum was a cleaner, dad fixed lifts, grew up in a council house, floated through jobs, you know, no idea kind of what to do. Uh, but this Marxist sociologist, I was at um, the University of Sussex at the time doing sociology because it was easy it was one hour a week and that's why I picked it um he started talking to me and he um by the end of this uh this journey he had offered me a job uh interviewing sex workers in Brighton about their work and their non-work identities you know so with this conversation and I I, I loved it I had to kind of what I had to do is I had to take promotional cards uh, at the time that you've got to remember the internet was in its infancy so lots of phone boxes were filled with those cards those brightly garishly colored cards with phone numbers where you could ring people up and i had to take the cards out of the box ring up the worker and then convince them that a stranger interviewing them uh, about their lives uh, wasn't really a pervert and it was actually a really good good idea and from this <laughs> i learned that kind of i really loved talking to people and listening to people about their lives and secondly, always invest in a really good carrier bag. Don't skimp, because uh, once or twice, my bag of colourful cards would spill across the number two bus in Brighton as it caught the edge of a seat. <laughs> um, but this kind of then sparked my interest in kind of, you know, how people spent their time, how they spent their money. Um, I thought, well, okay, well, that, that's quite interesting. And somehow I, I came back to London, I had to move in with mum and dad. And I, I got a job at the Centre for Research on Drugs and Health Behaviour at Charing Cross Hospital, which my friends all loved because they said, oh, Chris, he goes to work on drugs, which was both a, probably a factual statement and also what I did for a living. But kind of a, within three months, I was sent on a plane to Odessa in the Ukraine by my boss. I think my <laughs> boss, Jerry Stimson, thought it was an act like Pygmalion. I'd never been on a plane. I was 26 years old, never been on a plane. I'd just been as far as Calais on the ferry. It's a very short life, very, very sad. But I became part of a team that started working on uh, rapid assessment toolkits for researching the HIV uh, virus as it moved from drug injector to drug injector across India and Russia and all over. And from that, I learned about kind of, well, actually, you need to look at what people are doing on the front line, and we need to really think about pragmatic solutions. So campaigns are great. Ideological crusades are wonderful. But actually you've sometimes got to be really short on the obvious and on the practical. So I am getting to the point here. After eight years of working on drugs, I got a job at the Royal College of Psychiatrists and I started hanging out with people with long-term uh, serious mental illnesses in the community. It's an anthropological study. And another act of kindness, we've had the Marxists, we've had my old boss, Jerry, a guy called Tim, who was living with schizophrenia since his 20s. He was then in his 40s and unemployed, living on benefits of 6K a year. So, yeah, you can spend time with me. And I spent a few years with Tim just um, hanging out, learning about his life. And what was interesting about Tim and got me into what I do today is he incurred debts of £26,000. This is during the, the period of the, uh, the credit expansion where you could, you know, your dead cat could get a credit card. And it was very tightly tied into the way in which he saw the world uh, through both the prism of um, his illness and also through um, being in poverty. And I wrote about this in The Guardian, going back to, I think, about 2005. And they published a small piece that I wrote up. And somehow someone from the financial services sector saw it. I don't know, in their gentlemen's club, they were probably ironing the financial times uh, and kind of <laughs> The Guardian was just a hand. And from there, I was invited to work on a couple of um, groups that were looking at the issue of debt and mental health. 
And we've now ended up working with, through the Money Advice Trust, where we do all our kind of um, training, our consultancy, our change, and through Bristol University, where we do our research and our evidence gathering, work with nearly 300 firms, 28,000 staff across all sectors. But of course, the crown and glory is, is ending up on squander lust. So yeah, so, <laughs> so, so, so maybe that was at the back of my mind always that I wanted to be on squander lust. Everything you've ever done has brought you to this moment. <laughs> That's really cool. I knew you had a good story, which is which is why I wanted to ask. I think we so, should yeah. make a side episode on on that uh, hitchhiking and getting picked up by Marxist. Yeah. It's going to be if like you're gonna get picked director's up, picked cut up by of Squanderlust. Yeah, no, no, it's um, it very interesting. He's no, I can't tell you some of the stories. It's just between me and the Marxist. It's okay. <laughs> So that is, that's very cool. And that really shows how, I mean, I I also found that I sort of traveled sideways into the kind of work I'm doing. And I think mm. a lot of us who end up doing this kind of thing do. Mm. So having kind of started thinking about vulnerability, I know you have, you, you started from, I guess, from the user's perspective rather than from a financial services perspective. And I think that's really important because it's got to be, centered around providing for what people really need and not mm -hmm. just looking at at somebody as a as a condition or as a a situation and saying oh well this putting somebody into a box really mm -hmm. so we were going to move on to thinking about what we mean when we start talking about vulnerability you've said there isn't an easy definition but you want to try and give us well, I think that's a good thing. Some. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, well, the first thing I say, just to pick up on something really insightful that you just touched on was about putting people in boxes and um, it's like the consumer voice. But I'd say that extends to the staff side. So a lot mm. of the work that I do um, tries to balance looking at what we all as consumers might experience in our lives and how that affects our relationship with money. I also look very, very carefully, my colleagues, um, Jamie Evans and Sharon Collard at Bristol, uh, how staff make sense of this. Because staff are the ones who translate mm. policies into practice. They turn interactions into interventions. And I wish I had some, something alliterative to say to kind of round that <laughs> sentence off. But they're the ones who, who make it happen. So you have to look at both sides of the coin. But um, going back to kind of vulnerability, yeah, people get lost in this. And, you know, uh, people say, oh, you know. Why are there so many definitions of, of, of vulnerability? Why is it so difficult to pin it down? And um, I think it's really important because people can get lost in this and uh, actually start to kind of run very emotional interpretations. And there's a danger of that. And we'll come to mm. that in a minute. They often start thinking about vulnerable people and that triggers a very personal response. And it's, it's, it's that can be problematic. But to answer your question, the simplest thing to do is not think about what is the definition of vulnerability because God knows yeah. that there's enough. But trying to answer the question, vulnerable to what? And if you can establish what someone is vulnerable to, you know, being a consumer or firm relationship, or even just day to day, if you look at what someone's vulnerable to, you can then begin to figure out how to help them. And you begin to then define vulnerability in itself. So it's really, really simple, kind of what harm or difficulty is the person facing, experiencing or being hurt by? And if we, if we can establish that, we can help them. So... You know, in financial services, but also in central services, you know, your utilities or kind of retail or whatever it is, telecommunications, you can might look at things that make it harder for individuals to fairly choose, purchase, access, use, 
talk with a firm, complain about, pay for, benefit from a product or service. So I think, you know, you think about, well, you know, what is it that's making them vulnerable to these particular problems? You might look at things that a customer kind of mentions, which maybe aren't related to the uh, what the firm does. You know, they could be emotionally upset or confused and uncertain or lack awareness about what their options are more generally. So nothing to do with the credit card or the loan. And the firm might be able to do something there. And there's things where um, people are vulnerable to real crisis, you know, financial crisis or personal crisis where they, they might hurt themselves or, you know, think about uh, taking their own life, which has some people would argue might have something to do with the way in which the firm operates, but actually where you need to bring in additional expertise and experience. So the challenge with vulnerability then is kind of thinking about that vulnerable to what? And for firms, their challenge then is to think about, okay, how is this relevant to what we do as business as usual? How is it relevant to the extra things we could do, you know, to improve our business, the way we work with people? And where are the things where we need really, really strong partnerships uh, in order to kind of help that person if there's something we, we're, we're just not the experts in? That's that's really helpful, Chris. I think that helps people to move away from, I think, some of the initial conclusions that people jump to when you say the word vulnerable, because you mm. say vulnerable to people. And I think I don't know what percentage it is, but my experience from delivering training about a significant majority will will say, oh, little old lady. Mm. Like that's the <laughs> that's where people's minds go really rapidly. Oh, you know, vulnerable means little old lady. And apart from the fact that that's super patronizing, it's also just just not true. Age in itself is not a vulnerability. It might put somebody at higher risk of other conditions or situations that might make that person vulnerable but by itself you know there's there's literally no reason why age should be a vulnerability yeah and that goes back to that emotional response so kind of i don't know if you or alex have ever been in an mri scanner yes but, um if you like being in an mri scanner there's this a uh, neuroscientist called david eagleman and um with don vaughn uh, one of his collaborators he wrote a paper a couple of years ago called Empathic neural responses predict group allegiance. Now, David Eagleman is someone I'm not very keen on because he's uh, he's young, he's handsome, he's successful. He's got his own <laughs> PBS TV show. He's really clever. Uh, he's a published author as well. He writes really great fiction. But he's got this thing for putting people in MRI scanners. So he, he put 105 people in the scanner. And this is all about um, our emotional responses. Yeah, it's kind of a <laughs> There's barely enough room for one in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, very good. It's kind of a, that's. Um, and he showed the videos of people's hands, uh, not because he's got a fetish about hands, but the participants in the study, these 105, were told that this is all about memory. It's what we call kind of deceptive research, um, but it wasn't about uh, memory. It was about their 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 neural response to uh, images and labels. I'm going to tie this into kind of the vulnerability label. And what they would see, they'd see a random image of a hand was selected. So similar in skin tone, age and appearance. There's no real difference between the hands that you see. Appears on the screen in the MRI scanner. And then that hand stabbed with a syringe. I don't know if Eagleman did it himself. Mm. I like to think so. But kind of, um, he's that kind of guy. It's kind of, um, it's stabbed with a syringe. And Eagleman and Vaughan were really interested in the emotional pain response in the person's brain to see kind of what lit up in relation to the syringe going in and um, the way in which they explain it is if you have an em empathic response, your brain will light up more in the pain matrix in your, in, in your, in your brain. So, but here's the twist. This is really, really interesting. 
they got the same participants then saw a randomly selected video but each of the hands was labeled with a world belief system so christian hindu muslim jewish scientologist atheist not vegan really they didn't, they didn't have that then i'm sure they'd have that now but kind of <laughs> and then the hand was stabbed and again they measured the empathetic kind of response in the brain the pain response what they found was this they found that uh, and they got participants you know if you've ever been a research study you have to fill in lots of questionnaires beforehand and they filled in a questionnaire which was about their belief systems their religious background but what they found was when participants were shown a video of a hand with the same belief system as they had what we might call an, an insider shot they had a very high empathetic pain response almost as though their own hand was being stabbed but when they were shown a hand with a different belief system that a low or even non-existent pain response is a trend across the sample. Now, this isn't about religion per se. You know, even atheists cared about more about other atheists than they did about other people. But it's about that emotive response to labels. And the reason this is really interesting, I find this absolutely fascinating, is, as you said, Martha, is kind of that vulnerability can trigger an emotive response in us all. We can think about certain types of groups or certain types of people and emotion begins to creep in and it creeps into us, but it also creeps into staff in firms, firms, organizational policies around vulnerability. We can't help but being influenced by emotion. So we might end up then thinking, okay, vulnerability is the little old lady or vulnerability is someone with cancer or mental health or domestic abuse. And we might sit on that as our start point. But what about all those other types of vulnerability? I'll give you an example. I was, I was in a van traveling around a, a northern Northern town, I won't say which one, uh, with some engineers. And we were looking at how field engineers for this particular company could help people in vulnerable situations. And we said to them, kind of, well, who's, who's vulnerable? And these people live in the communities that they serve. They said, the little old ladies and essentially little kids running around with no trousers on, you know, where they've been um, neglected. And it's rightly so. We need to tackle isolation. We need to tackle neglect and abuse. And I was saying to them, well, what, what about other forms of vulnerability? Um, and I mentioned kind of addictions or poverty and their response was, well, everyone here, everyone around here is poor and, you know, we haven't got much time for drug users. So this, the reason I'm saying this is there is this emotional side to money. And we sometimes think about firms being, you know, cold and indifferent and driven by logic in the bottom line. But actually the choices that are being made are often driven by these emotive responses. And that's great to get things going. But we've got to be very careful that some of the smaller voices, the quieter voices, the unpopular choices or groups are not overlooked in the scramble to tackle the more fashionable kind of a, a seemingly perceived deserving causes. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that. I actually experienced almost the inverse of this one. And it's it, it was actually an in-group, out-group thing, as you were just, just talking about, where I did some work with a local authority and somebody quite senior in the local authority was very, very skeptical about really anybody's vulnerability of any kind, except for people with alcohol addictions, because they had a close relative mm. who was addicted to, to alcohol. And so it was almost like the inverse, really, of every other kind of situation that you would usually see when you start talking about this you know this person just didn't care at all about you know the people with dementia and the people with learning disabilities and the, the, a lot of the names of people that come up mm. early when you start talking about vulnerability in most cases but you know 
alcohol abuse and, and addiction, that was definitely real and we needed to, to do something about that. Which, which <laughs> so is it's, great. It's, an, it's a, human. A force. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, 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 it's really interesting. And maybe we'll, we'll come on to this bit later about how large-scale organisations are increasingly uh, communicating um, what you might say is personal kind of values around mm. providing support and engagement and tackling tackling issues. Uh, we might touch on that a bit, like, bit later on, but it is good that happens. You do want firms, though, to know their customer base, know mm. something about the things they're going through, and to begin to tailor their their interventions and the support they can offer around who they're serving because uh, they are serving us and we're, we're paying for that. So we should get good service whether we're vulnerable or not. And it has to be that balance between, you know, the heart and the data set. You need to know what to do. I've always, I, I find myself, I don't, I don't know about either of you in the past, you go to discussions or meetings. Remember going to meetings in the good old days? It was kind <laughs> of discussions or meetings and there'll be uh, lobbyists from the main charities. I mean, I worked in the charity sector for 13 years at the Royal College of Psychiatrists, shout long and loud for mental health then, and I still would now. But what you see as you go around the table, you won't find the quiet voices about uh, sickle cell anemia or learning disabilities even, you know, like 800,000 to a million people living with learning disabilities in this in this country. They won't be there and you, you'll see it dominated by dementia or cancer or mental health or maybe certain forms of physical disability. And that's great. We need to do things. But sometimes we need to think in a more broader way, to think about the common harms the ways in which we're, we're all vulnerable and to ensure that we're, we're addressing those. So we, uh, if we look at decision-making, for example, we don't just look at decision-making and uh, people with mental health problems and some of the cognitive challenges that they might face. We look at decision-making more generally because if we can fix this problem, we can help people with literacy issues who might not speak English as a first language, who might be experiencing problems because their medication for physical health condition is making them drowsy or they find it hard to concentrate. So it's, it's, it's about balancing this all off. Mm. This is, um, Martha and I have had a chat about this before, obviously, because we've been doing our homework. But we've talked about this before, the kind of, you know, how it's about good customer service at the, at the bottom of this. And, it you know, people listening may think, well, I'm not vulnerable. I don't fit into any of these categories or have any of these labels or this isn't about me. But actually, I mean, aside from the fact it could be because things happen in our lives that we do not expect. Um, but it's also about, you know, providing really good service to people so that it is focused on helping them, you know, fulfil what they need to do with the organisation and hopefully, you know, do more with them which is essentially good business but i also mm. think about because i used to work in a technology policy think tank and as part of that work um we think about the principle that came from our um founder that was furthest first like if you design for the furthest first you actually design for everybody because if you're if you're mm. designing a service or a product or a um, some kind of piece of technology a device that is operable and usable and you know works well for these kind of the furthest reaches of your customer base or your user base you're actually designing something that works well for everybody up to that point as well and i think like this sort of idea of it being not about you know what what is wrong with you but or what is different about you but what is it that's you know the vulnerable to what and the, and getting to the needs of that is mm -hmm is really the key and perhaps something that listeners could 
tap their minds into about, you know, everybody's had a terrible customer service experience. Um, mm. Everyone could think of something <laughs> that really didn't help them. They went, you know, in with the right mindset, I'm going to get this thing sorted. And it just went horribly wrong because they had someone who didn't understand them on the phone, who spoke in the wrong way, who had a dodgy mm. tone, who used words they didn't understand. Just many things that can go wrong in these sorts of customer interactions that then are compounded when there's something else going on in life. I mean, you've seen that in the um, the collections sphere. I don't know if you've ever had a collections, a debt collection phone call. Um, but, you know, maybe, let's say, 10 years ago, um, cash was king. And the whole point of ringing someone or making contact with a customer who might have run up in arrears, maybe small arrears, was to get that money and a promise to pay uh, as quickly as possible. So you get a payment on there and a, and a payment plan in place. Things have changed massively in collections, um, you know, and it's due to attention to some of those, uh, you might call them kind of outlying conditions. So kind of a mental health was one of the big ones. There was work done by Professor Elaine Kempson back in 2003, where she reviewed the banking code. That's usually quite a dry gig, reviewing a banking <laughs> code. Um, but she made one, the recommendation she made was um, you need to look at the issue of people who are living in poverty with mental health problems and like a domino effect, and this is one of the interesting things about working with corporates, if the dominoes are, um, are nicely lined up, you actually find that <laughs> someone flicking one domino in the right place at the right time leads to huge ripples of change, like the whole set of dominoes, a bit like those Japanese domino conventions where they kind of fall across the floor and kind of make a beautiful pattern in the middle. And you've seen these changes happen Time and time again, we used to talk in hushed tones societally about cancer and about death and about mental health. But actually, those those conversations have, have emerged both in society and in some of the and in the firms that we we work with. And I think the genius is always in designing something that we we don't even notice it's there. And I, mm. I think the best example that sticks in my mind is well worth having a look at because the uh, the gentleman in question is so fascinating. Have either of you been to Norwich? Uh, yes. It's not a trick question. That's a question. <laughs> yes, Would you like to come really to Norwich? Briefly. It's gonna, it's gonna, it's, um, no, uh, Norwich was the um, the birthplace of the uh, the drop curb. Ah, so, uh, you know, how many times a day that. do you walk yeah. over a drop curb? Now, the guy, um, Selwyn Goldsmith, uh, he died a few years ago. Um, he was a tetraplegic architect and he, he had dreams of um, following a, a different career became uh, disabled over time and focused his mind on actually how can we design spaces that are inclusive for people with disabilities. He also did a really interesting study with his wife on uh, women's toilets, which was called P's and Q's. And it was about <laughs> the inequalities in the uh, number of toilets in, I think it was in uh, the National Theatre or something. No. Or something on the South Bank about why, why do men get so many toilets and, you know, why is patriarchy you know, controlling our kind of urine flow. Um, so it's rubbish. So he designed the um, the drop curb. And the drop curb is, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're disabled, if you're pushing a push chair. I'm from Walthamstow, London, so I'm pushing a mattress in a trolley. That's usually <laughs> what we do around here. Everybody uses them and it's there. It's a bit like the electric toothbrush, you know, that was invented for people with physical disabilities. But it's something, uh, uh, I mean, it's not the sort of thing you want to get on your anniversary, is it? An electric toothbrush again. But it's a lovely gift at all other times to uh, to receive. <laughs> so, um, yes. So we, we want this inclusive design. And that furthest first principle, 
you see it increasingly bubbling up. A lot of people get very confused about that. They get mm. confused between universal design and inclusive design. But actually, you know, it's a bit, a bit like Louis Armstrong I said about kind of music. There are only two types of music, good music and bad music. You've got good design <laughs> and bad design. So, um, yes. Um, I wanted to pick up on something that Alex said really fleetingly, that I think is really key to us understanding vulnerability as a, an idea. We have to understand that vulnerability is not a binary. You either are or you aren't. Mm-hmm. And it's also fluctuating. And, and over our lives, we will all be more or less vulnerable at different times. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's something that a lot of people don't get. And when you when you do get it, it's it's a real aha. Yeah, I can uh, actually um, just to sort of chip in on this one. I I know this personally because um, I have a cyclical health condition, which means that in quite short periods of time, I can go from being as I am now, quite normal and chatty and thinking and able to cope with a three way conversation over the internet about something I have no real expertise in, <laughs> to actually being completely overwhelmed and not being able to deal with anything very much at all. And, you know, even then to the point that getting new emails in my inbox overwhelms me. So that this is, you know, something that I experienced myself. And it, it again, like it can be easy to to be thinking about other people with this, but it can very much, you know, come into our lives and this cyclical changing dynamic basis. Those those cycles can be long ones. They can be, you know, over the whole of your lifetime, you may go into a place and come out again, or they can be quite quick depending on, say, something like bereavement. So mm. um, just want to say that I understand this personally, if not from an expertise point of view. <laughs> No, no, it's got, I think the first thing to say is I think the, the term expert and expertise should be banned. You see people on LinkedIn who are experts in this and that, and you think, mm-hmm. really? Really? You're <laughs> claiming to be. I think this is too complex to be uh, anyone to claim to be an, an expert. And that's why we need both uh, a range of uh, experience, lived experience, professional experience, design experience to try and crack, crack the problem. I, th- I think it's really, really interesting though, around vulnerability because you can be a bit like a. You can have Schrodinger's vulnerability. You can be both vulnerable and not vulnerable at the same time. And uh, let's come to that in a second. So maybe if I give you a couple of examples, which might um, that would be great. bring it to life. So mm. imagine we're told about a customer who's a taxier. I don't know if you've heard of a taxier. And it's a condition that can affect coordination and balance and speech. Um, so this customer considers themselves, um, they worry about the fact that when they ring their bank, that staff might think they're drunk. But actually what mm. they need is just a bit more time for conversation, let them continue to use their telephone banking like any other customer. And this customer is vulnerable to being excluded from telephone banking because the staff may misinterpret the cues and the signals. The customer is vulnerable unless they get support from the bank. So they let them know they have a medical condition and the bank then as a support response gives them more time to communicate. And the cause of their vulnerability is ataxia, which is that health condition that affects interaction. And the key thing to remember here with this one, so this person's currently vulnerable, the key thing to remember here is that what causes the vulnerability is not the same thing as what the person is vulnerable to. I think that sometimes we can fall down that little rabbit hole and think, oh, okay, you've just told us that you've got X, oh, therefore I need to do you know, Y and Z. And it, it doesn't work like that. We have to kind of listen more carefully so that's someone who's currently vulnerable someone who's not vulnerable but could be is let's think about a customer who uses an oxygen machine at home to assist with their breathing due to kind of a a physical health condition and this really affects their everyday life in many ways but it doesn't impact on their use of financial services 
Um, they still run their own business from home. They still use all the online banking. They can see no problem. So in this relationship with the bank at that period in time, they're not vulnerable. However, if we were looking at their relationship with an electricity provider, they would be vulnerable because if there was a power cut or an interruption to supply, then this could affect the use of the, the oxygen machine. So you can be vulnerable in one time, as kind of Alex was saying a moment ago, also in kind of one context, but not another. And then we've got people who are potentially vulnerable. So, you know, someone might have just got a stage one diagnosis of an illness, but not have any current support needs, but they tell their bank because the things could get rocky along the way. But uh, if the bank doesn't record it properly uh, with the right kind of uh, permissions and consents and doesn't monitor the situation, actually they could miss little indicators that the condition maybe has progressed, unfortunately, got worse and impacted on that individual. So we need to be aware of these. And also we're all messy bundles, you know, uh, we're, all, we're all imperfect. <laughs> yes. Yes. We can be vulnerable in one way, a life event may happen, but our health condition is fine, or it might flip. So we can be Schrodinger's vulnerability. We can be both vulnerable <laughs> in the eyes of a bank, but also kind of not vulnerable. So my advice to anyone is uh, try to base all of this in, you know, either your lived or your personal experience or, or just in the reality of everyday life. I think definitions are helpful as signposts, but we can start slicing things up so finely it begins to lose all kind of sense or, or meaning. That, that makes a lot of sense. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We've talked a little bit about how some of the stigma on this stuff is, is decreasing. And I would say, you know, it hasn't always been that way. There's definitely been some some pushback. And I think even now, when you raise the topic of of what vulnerable means to people, just that word itself does definitely get a strong response from people. So what kind of pushback have you seen and how have you been able to respond that? How does that deal with how you work to try and influence the people that you're working with at creditors and, and mm. other businesses? I think vulnerability is nothing more than a helpful signpost. So it, it points us to look at the things that may make someone vulnerable to a particular type of harm. Uh, it directs us to think about what that, that harm might be. 
It also prompts us as a signpost to look in different directions for help and support, including what we might do internally as a, as a firm, as well as who we might kind of partner or refer to kind of externally. And I think really importantly, the most probably the most important contribution of vulnerability is it serves as a flag or a point in the map to allow different groups to gather, collaborate and work together in the same direction rather than separately. It provides an mm -hmm. agenda or a, a focus on which a cancer charity or a, the witch consumer group or a money vice trust or whoever can come together because there's something that bonds them in terms of uh, their endeavours. And I think that's really, really important. So language is absolutely key, but I, I kind of prefer to live in a world where we help people rather than debate <laughs> things on a page or a, like a Twitter thread that goes on forever. And <laughs> I don't think customers want to hear that they're vulnerable. Oh, uh, no, they really they're, don't. They're not, no, no, they're not interested in that. But what they want to hear is, um, how are we going to help them? <laughs> do we understand? Yep. Have we listened to them properly? And, you know, what help can we give them? So this is about talking with people about giving them further choices. I much prefer it when you talk about, okay, so, you know, the, you've told me about your, uh, the fact that you're going to be kind of, um, you know, moving out of your flat. The lease has kind of run out, you know, the rental periods run out. You're going to be a little bit kind of um, shuffling from friend to friend for a bit. Thanks for telling me. Well, let's talk about the further choices on how we can kind of run your account or some of the, the options we can give you, which they might find useful as opposed to, I'm just going to put you through to the vulnerability team. Um, <laughs> be able to talk to you about vulnerability and how vulnerable mm. you are, because that's going to make you feel awful. I would have thought you want a solution, not a label. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. I guess one of the things I was getting at was, was where do we think this discomfort about the word vulnerable, like why is the word vulnerable so stigmatized? I mean, everybody is potentially vulnerable. Everybody will at some point become vulnerable. It's almost impossible to avoid it at, at some point in your life. And it's not really something you can control. So I think the stigma around vulnerability as a as a term and the reason we don't accept it is there's so much stigma around all of the things that could lead you to be vulnerable you know there's stigma around having experienced mm. abuse there's mm. ageism there's ableism there's stigma around being in receipt of benefits and mm. i think so many of those types of stigma get kind of bundled in together and then stuck onto this word vulnerable yeah. and i wish we could all kind of let go of a lot of that and say actually we all need each other and looking down on people who are currently experiencing some vulnerability is just looking down on your future self potentially yeah it's i think it's a bit um, grim <laughs> maybe it's because um uh, stigma is usually accompanied by ignorance and discrimination so there's there's both the judgment that flows from other people's ignorance about who you are as a person mm -hmm how you live and how this really does and doesn't affect you, which only mm. you can redefine. There's a root in it as well of, of anxiety, I think, because, mm. you know, it's, I saw it a lot in the tech stuff that we did. Like people would always be, think of the children, but actually that was like, <laughs> I don't understand the internet, therefore I'm terrified. Mm. Um, and I think there's a lot of that as well. Like people don't like to talk about these things maybe because they, in some part of themselves, really fear being that themselves, you know, being that vulnerable themselves or in that way mm. I think is definitely a part of it which then drives you know it's like I'm ignorant because I don't want to go there because I'm mm. afraid um, there's a self-labeling thing do you think Alex is you know you're 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 opening up a, a dimension of how you see yourself 
uh, another mm. aspect of your identity. Sorry to get all sociological on this, that one hour a week that I was doing <laughs> yeah. clearly, clearly paid off. That your biographical narrative, your yeah. ontological narrative, it kind of uh, you know, opens up and now you're not yeah. only Alex, a business person, a host, better host of the uh, Squandalous podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we always um, say I'm the I'm the Muttley to Martha's Dastardly. So <laughs> I was thinking like Cannon and Ball. I won't see which one. But, uh, <laughs> but there's also that that dark hole of once you've shouted into the voice of the corporation, help me. Yeah. Um, and your little mm. packet of data flies off yeah. into the matrix. Mm. You think, hmm, who knows? Okay. Is that when I apply for a mortgage in 10 years' time? Uh, as my mm. disclosure of depression, is that going to mm. come back? You know, will mm. I get a credit card because I've turned on my gambling block, smartphone account? How yeah, is exactly. this going to come come back around? And that's where we have firms have to realise this whole discussion around uh, what makes us human, how we want services to flex, uh, and if we have to use the word vulnerable, you know, what we're vulnerable to, has to be a two-way street. It's not just about us shouting into the abyss it's about the signals that come out of it about, okay, this is what, mm. if you tell us what happens as part of normal human experience to pretty much all of us, mm. you know, this is what we can do. But at the moment, there's lots of discussions around the bereavement standard for mm. banking. Now, I, I'm no historian. I'm only a sociologist, although that is the most complex of all the social sciences it was once called social physics. But you know, I do believe death has been around for quite a while, uh, you know, as part <laughs> of the human condition. <laughs> you, you would have thought, that actually we'd have some of these things in place in terms of sending out those signals. So it's really, really challenging. I think also one of the other challenges, apart from opening ourselves up to, uh, to kind of self-identification and needing help and feeling kind of, um, kind of vulnerable, is that the word is A, very difficult to spell, uh, B, <laughs> um, it takes too long to say, and when you then look at documents and talk about vulnerability, they're usually accompanied by a map. I don't know if you've seen this. You kind of, so there'll be a map of the UK and there'll be lots of boxes on it that say uh, people who are disabled and then a number of people who you know, have cancer or mental health problems. And you look at it and you think, blimey, okay. And it has the opposite normative effect. You think, oh, goodness, it sounds like the, the only person who wasn't vulnerable was a man in the 1980s in rural Cornwall that might not have been vulnerable for about 20 minutes. So you know, everybody's vulnerable. And then you become confused. You start thinking, well, actually, is, is my need greater than others? Should I be disclosing? You know, mm. what should I really expect mm. back? So it's about that kind of contract. And it used to be a social contract. It used to be a contract between us, us and the government, us and society. You know, as a citizen, I did this. And in return, I got this. But now we've got corporates involved. And I think it's a necessary step forward, but one we have to be very cautious about is this relationship between not just citizens and society, but between consumers and corporations who've started moving into some of that space that was occupied by the state. Interesting. So, you know, my Marxists yeah. would be very proud of me. You know, that's <laughs> well, I mean, one of the things about this as well is that when you look at, at this topic, a lot of it is about having a more human flexible response from mm. corporations and I think that's partly to do with the size of businesses that we have to deal with now and therefore how there's a conflict between those big businesses having a kind of flexible human approach to working with their customers one-to-one -one when at, at the point where they're interacting one-to-one -one, and then having 
the kind of efficiency and consistency that they want to have across their processes. So you, you, I mean, this is the kind of the computer says no phenomenon, right? When a business becomes incredibly process driven mm-hmm. and actually in some cases technology driven where thinking about call centers where everything's on a script, everything's on a, a screen in front of the person and that the, um, the customer service agent and, you know, they become very disconnected from who they're speaking to because mm-hmm. it's all process and it's all targets and vulnerability kind of draws us back to, in some ways, a, a smaller business approach that is more human and more about connecting on a on an individual level mm-hmm. in order to get that sort of better customer service and, and that meeting of actual need, which is, you know, after all of our discussion, we have to go right back to the beginning and say, vulnerable to what? What, mm-hmm. what are this person's needs? Mm-hmm. And that's easier to meet if you have the flexibility that you have in a lot of smaller businesses and much harder when you're dealing with kind of big global corporations that, as I say, are trying to be both efficient and also are trying to be consistent across mm. different branches or, or, you know, thousands of staff. Yeah. But the interesting link there, though, is between like um, when you think about efficiency and consistency and you think about needs rather than looking at if you look at vulnerability labels and groupings, you're moving away from the needs and those labels can be you know, various, very many of them, but a lot of the needs are very similar and very overlapping. So that mm. actually, if you if you do look at the needs of this and organizations, companies look at the needs of this, there is a lot of consistency within that, that they could then provide mm. a consistent response to. And there may be different drivers, but the service input that they have would be very similar, like, you know, slowing the conversation down a bit, asking if someone's okay, you know, really the simple, basic, good customer service stuff. Yeah, fundamentals. That would, that, yeah exactly. That could cover a lot of this. And, and I think there can be maybe a tendency and perhaps a danger in, in companies to look at this as this is a massive you know investment of our time and energy into retraining people and all these things. And it's like, well, actually, if you broke it down to focusing on the needs of of the people, the customers that you're talking about, um, and in fact, all of your customers, in a way, you can bring it down to actually an overlapping areas or a smaller number of overlapping areas that mm. have a consistency and efficiency naturally within them. No, I think... And, you know, it's almost like you, Alex, you wrote the FCA guidance that came out um, <laughs> yesterday. You say you're not expert, but kind of a, it's a nice, nice distillation. I think there's a few things to say. To pick up on Martha's earlier point, yes, this is about a, a more human response. But actually, that doesn't necessarily re- um, rely on or need human contact. Uh, some people in uh, vulnerable mm, situations agree. might actually, you know, recall in horror uh, mm. and <laughs> not, not, not want that. And I, I can tell you about someone I know very well a bit later on who's who's a world intelligence champion but really really struggles with that form of phone or discursive kind of content uh, face-to-face over the telephone I think mm. the second thing to say is that I'll ask you Martha what's 109 pages long and could cost the financial services sector 710 million pounds to implement <laughs> that would be the new FCA guidance wouldn't it yes so and what's really interesting about the FCA guidance is it really is very, very clear that firms only need to think about the uh, the processes or uh, the targets that they might set themselves around vulnerability, but they need to be crystal clear about the outcomes that they want to achieve. And in, in the guidance, it's very, very clear where it says the outcomes for vulnerable consumers need to be uh, as good 
as those for non-vulnerable consumers uh, in the activities as part of everyday business. So we need to make sure that vulnerable consumers are able to access products, use products, get the best out of them. But also in terms of the additional activities that we designed or interventions or support mechanisms to allow people to make uh, adjustments and take account of the situation that they're in, the extra things that we might do as part of our business. And that's really key. They also introduce um, costings, and it's the it's the first mm. time uh, the FCA have ever done this. And they say £710 million, a one-off cost across the whole of financial services to implement their guidance, and then £450 million for each of the following year. And there's different costs that they give by size of firm. And this is going to provoke a reaction. It's going to be a debate and a reaction to this. And um, I think that debate's going to go two ways. You're going to get some people who are going to say, well, maybe the pendulum has swung. Or maybe they won't say it, but they'll think it. The pendulum has swung too far here on the expectations placed on firms to understand vulnerable customer needs, design products, change communications, train their staff. Or you might get people see this as an investment that will save costs. You know, they invest the save argument. Mm. So you invest mm -hmm. here and you save costs in other areas. Mm. But it's going to cause this debate among 52,000 firms, they reckon the guidance will apply to across the whole of mm. financial services. So it's going to be really interesting where it goes. And also, none of these estimates and probably much of the guidance is, um, is, is, is not taken into account COVID-19. It's been oh, written right. and mm. undertaken prior to COVID-19. And I think the timing of the guidance is really interesting. A lot of people were saying, actually, this wasn't going to come out until the end of the year. But I think the FSA probably, bearing in mind that 23% of UK workers have been either furloughed, they've lost their job, they've lost hours and pay, and that the whole of the current guidance and estimates didn't take that into account. So in issuing this consultation guidance now, over the summer period, it's going to be really, really interesting to see if the FCA have done this to try and incorporate feedback, both on what they have there in the content, but also what's happening now in terms of coronavirus, in order to publish a finalised set of guidance for firms to respond to just as the furlough and payment extensions end by October 2020. Interesting. I actually, it was something that I wanted to pick up with you is whether you think banks' responses and, and other providers' responses to COVID has been at all informed by work they've done previously on uh, supporting vulnerable customers better. Mm -hmm. So vulnerability has been around for forever. We didn't talk about it as vulnerability. So firms have always been responding to some types of needs, uh, some firms better than others. But I think it's fair to say that those firms who engaged with their regulatory guidance, be it financial services or elsewhere, uh, at an earlier point, and for financial services, it'd be 2015, uh, really, that we first saw the, the, f the first faults coming out of um, Canary Wharf from the FCA, um, are in a much better position um, mm. to respond to some of those needs. And it's really interesting. I don't know what the two of you think. We had the 2008 economic crisis. And on the back of that, I think that's where the vulnerability agenda came from. There was a sense of that the uh, financial services system needed to repay and regain the trust of consumers. And I think vulnerability slowly kind of uh, came out of that. Um, some people are really dissatisfied with the way in which we our current financial services systems work. Mm -hmm. But it's almost COVID is seen as a, like, getting a second bite of the cherry in many respects, a second go. And the way in which the financial services industry have stepped up, and they really have stepped up, 
been quite impressive in some areas. And I know there are gaps in there, but their overall response has been quite impressive. So it'd be really interesting. The test will be what is rolled forward in terms mm. of the way in which things have changed and what's rolled back. And uh, none of us know that, but the FCA guidance could really help solidify and tie down some of those aspects that we want to keep. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. So we always want to tie back our conversations. We've had, you know, a lot of quite, some of it quite theoretical conversation and some of it more with some specific examples, but we always want to tie back what we're talking about to our listeners and their experience. So if somebody recognises themselves in the conversations we've had here and says, oh, well, does that mean in some way I count as a vulnerable customer? What could they do with this knowledge that we've passed on today? Is there some advice that you have for them in their interactions with their providers that might help them get better outcomes? Okay, I think there's probably there's probably three things. The first one is to think long and hard about what help would help you. What is it that your bank or your service provider could do to help you financially, in terms of your situation, in terms of where you find yourself at the, at the moment? And it doesn't matter if you're not entirely sure, you know, you, you can't nail it down to something super specific, but get a sense of um, where it is that you could do with a little bit of extra help, or maybe a significant piece of help. And you should do this and think, actually, am I asking, am I making a request to the bank, or am I going to complain? Which track am I going to go down? Am I going to go to customer services, or am I going to step this up a couple of gears and go down a complaints track? Because really, I've been too nice, and uh, they should be doing something about this. And the complaints track will uh, get you somewhere faster, particularly if you write a letter to the chief executive's office or the executive office. That often gets dealt with quite quickly. The second thing, once you've, you've, you've figured out kind of roughly what you might need some help with, it doesn't matter if it's, it's vague, but it's enough to get you going, is to consider whether you want to actually ask your bank or your provider for that help, because that's going to mean telling them probably about your situation. Now, they're really used to this. Tens of thousands of people will do it every single day, to their financial services providers and the staff are usually prepared and ready to uh, to listen and to engage so if you feel okay about sharing this information then let them know you can even ask them before you share your information what will happen to it once you've you've told them i've got to, i want to tell you about something about my situation but can you let me know it's a health thing can you tell me what it is you're going to do with that so you can check it out a little bit. And even if you don't like the sound of how it might be used, you can still probably ask for help, but request that your details are not recorded. They might ask for explicit consent to record something about your health or your situation. You can always say no. I mean, there is disadvantage that you have to keep telling staff, but you can say no. And you can be, if you feel very confident, if you feel um, actually, um, you know, I, I want to take this uh, further more quickly, you could even begin that contact by asking to speak uh, to a specialist support team or an extra help team or even, God forbid, the vulnerability team and that they might be able to kind of uh, pick this up a bit more quickly. <laughs> and thirdly, it's if you don't want to share your situation, you're not quite ready to do that or you've got a need that is more about accessibility, it needs to be provided to you in a certain way of service or you need to use a product in a, a certain format or fashion then unfortunately you probably do need to do some research. Um, sadly, I don't think which have done a lead table review 
of the best banks for disability or vulnerability or particular needs. But some charities will have guidance on this and forums are really um, very good as well if you can use those. It used to be the newer challenger banks were best on features. Uh, they would lead on things which often took advantage of the uh, operating system of the phone that they, they sat on. But some of the more established players have uh, really quite good vulnerability policies now. So they're the three things as a consumer. If you want to uh, listen to a niche podcast, you can find me at Vulnerability Matters, which sounds a bit like a mid-morning matters of Alan Partridge, but we don't quite <laughs> have the same production values or team of writers. Or you can look up some of the research we've done. We've done research with over must be over six, 7,000 uh, members of staff on a range of topics and also with consumers as well in partnership with Money and Mental Health and Mind and all, all other sorts by uh, going to the moneyadvicetrust.org slash vulnerability. Or you can abuse me on Twitter or LinkedIn for my rambling stories about Marxists and hitchhiking and various other things. <laughs> Hitting the follow button now. Yeah, no yeah, one is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Dislike absolutely. and unsubscribe. It's kind of <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I think it, I think it's really important to make that point that um, providers really have improved significantly um, over the last few years, and and that although it's always a choice what you disclose and how much you disclose, that there are now benefits to disclosing yeah. what's going on in your life and 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 actually just telling them. And that, that actually comes with with benefits of potentially a better service, a service that meets your needs more. Mm. Yeah, and that and that a lot of the time people will be prepared and trained and kind of ready to you know respond effectively to that and not just recoil in shock or or sort mm. of sniff at you or something. Yeah. And if you don't think you're getting the service or the response that you think you should have got, then there's always the financial ombudsman service to take it further and um so that's after you've complained to the bank or really trying to push it if you're dissatisfied you can go to them and make your case and they're increasingly becoming interested in um the issues of consumer vulnerability good stuff good stuff what about um because we we know we have finance professionals listening to the show as well what about if if they want to get better you know some of them will be in some of these big firms that are already working on this, but some might be in a, in smaller firms and thinking, oh, actually, you know what I could do with more detail, better guidance. Um, where can they go to look? So everything that we've ever created, all the material that we include in our training, all of our data is available for free at the moneyvicetrust.org slash vulnerability. So I'd, I'd go there. What we try to do is we try to be kind of a short on the obvious and long on the practical by providing right. the bridge between the general advice that you might get around how to work with people with certain conditions or with experiencing types of common harm. We try to actually provide tools that allow you to manage those situations in a commercial situation. Because I think, Martha, one of the challenges is that charities really want to engage in making services better for people that they represent that sometimes the guidance and advice they provide is quite general and sometimes mm. you could just read it on a leaflet. If you can persuade someone in your firm to go on one of our, our courses, we run a vulnerability academy where it brings people together from different essential service sectors uh, who have an operational responsibility, so not frontline, but an operational responsibility for overseeing vulnerability together over five sessions to uh, develop their own blueprint for response. But if you're frontline, we also run a range of other things. We've got a course coming up on product design and vulnerability. 
which I think is a really, really interesting area. Going back to what mm. Alex was saying earlier, mm. we've got um, courses coming up on GDPR and vulnerability, which won't get the heart beating as fast. I know when you bring together <laughs> those two subjects, that are, but I'm sure there are people out there who are interested in that. It is very, like many things that are really dry, it can be quite explosive in the wrong hands and quite helpful in the right hands. There are all sorts of things happening, but I'd say if you're in financial services, become part of it. You can draw what you know personally and what you've seen professionally and you can bring about change in your own organization there are plenty of opportunities to become a vulnerability champion sadly you don't often get paid more money for it but you know who knows <laughs> things might change um which will which allow you to engage a little bit more and certainly listen to Squanderlust. Oh, <laughs> thank you <laughs> we, we, we appreciate that <laughs> Chris, it has been a real joy. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show. It's been a lot of fun. Um, hey, a and, pleasure. I don't uh, think I'll be really listening this, back to this one when I, when I, uh, I usually I listen to when I walk the dog. So uh, <laughs> I won't be listening to this. I'll skip this one and I'll go to one of the other ones. But thanks for having me on. <laughs> it's thanks been our having. pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Squanderlust, a podcast about the emotional side of money. Your hosts were Martha Lawton and Alex Lemon. You can find us online at squanderlustpod.com, where we'll put links to show notes, books and articles we mention, and other interesting things. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover or you have a story to tell about something you've heard here, get in touch through the website. If you enjoyed Squanderlust, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and rate us too. The more stars you give, the happier we get. And don't forget to tell your friends about us. Squanderlust is sponsored by Wardour Studios in Fitzrovia, London, with production by David Smith, Charlie Brandon King, and Alicia Cunningham. Our theme music is by Wardour Studios and graphic design by Jason Reed. Thanks for listening. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then... Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.